0: If you're looking to sell your private company stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than 4 billion in company-approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, visit us at sharespost.com/equity.
1: Hi, everyone, and happy holidays. I'm Connie Loises, the Silicon Valley editor of TechCrunch. For this week's special holiday episode, we are talking today with Bradley Tusk, who famously ran Mike Bloomberg's third campaign for mayor of New York, among other past political roles, and has become in recent years an advisor to startups and Fortune 500 companies alike, and a venture investor. Bradley, thank you so much for taking time for us. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, so in addition to everything else Bradley does, he's also a, an author and a philanthropist, and he's been a longtime proponent of creating a workable online voting system, which I think is really interesting, especially because The New Yorker just took a look at your efforts this fall uh, and around a startup whose mobile voting app uh, you sort of put to, to, to the test for the midterms. Can you yeah. like walk us through a little bit of that background and, and tell us sure. how that went?
0: Sure. So, so two things. One is, you know, I spent about the first 20 years of my career working directly in government and politics, state, uh, local, federal, legislative, executive, campaigns. So I, I saw a lot of it. And I reached the conclusion that with the exception of Mike Bloomberg, every single politician I ever met was motivated solely by whatever would affect their next election. You know, th- having the validation that comes with holding office for them is like oxygen for you or me. They literally can't out. without it. So if you want to change the way that they're going to behave in office, you've got to change the things that put them in office in the first place, right? And so if you take, say, a Republican congressman from Florida and turnout in your primary is 12%, and because of gerrymandering, the primary effectively is the general election, and say half of that 12% are NRA members, mm-hmm. you may know that an assault weapon ban is the right thing to do, uh, but for as long as you're, you know half of, the, of your electorate uh, are, are against assault weapon ban, you're never going to vote for it because the thought of losing your job is much worse to you than the thought of what happens uh, you know, in mass shootings. But now let's say that people can vote on their phones and turnout goes from 12% to 60%. The NRA's vote share goes from 50% down to 10%. The politics flip completely. And then if you want to keep your job, you have to be first up and banned. So I strongly believe that whatever politicians do when it comes to public policy, is a direct result of what impacts our next election. So, if you want to change the way they behave, you've got to change the way that they're
1: elected. So, Number you need more people to vote, meaning not just the most ardent, ardent people. Yeah, to vote, uh,
0: not just voting. So, for example, this year, the uh, probably the most political of all years. You know, any of us could probably step into an elevator and, and have a decent conversation with this total stranger about politics right now. Um, you know what turnout was in the primary nationally?
1: For the for the uh, midterms? Yep. Uh, I don't know, up to
0: 25%? Yes, 19.7%. So in the most political of all years, four to five registered voters did not show up to vote in the primary. Right. And especially in states like California or New York, the primary often really is the general election, right? Like I voted in Manhattan, and there was nothing I voted for in the general election that, that my vote could have impacted one way or the other. It's all the mm-hmm. two. In the primary. So so that's one. And then two is, and this is basically what we learned from all the campaigns we did with Uber to make ride sharing legal. If you give people the ability to advocate politically from their phones, they'll do it, right? So the same people who never vote in a primary, don't know who their state rep is or their city council member is or whatever else, when it was, hey, if we want to keep Uber, if we want to keep ride sharing, we need to tweet at our council member, we need to email them. Mm -hmm. They did it. Collectively, millions of people did it. And that's how we made ride sharing legal in every single market in the U.S. And then third is blockchain, which gives us a way now to safely transmit information from point A to point B. So in putting all of that together, we launched an initiative out of my foundation to create mobile voting in the U.S. And the first test run was with the state of West Virginia. We just did it in their general election a couple of weeks ago and deployed military uh, were able to vote on their phone. Um, they were both verified through a facial recognition scan and through a fingerprint scan. Um, and once they passed that, they were able to vote. Uh, in the election, the votes really counted, and they were transmitted over blockchain uh, into the Secretary of State's office, and people voted from 30 different countries. We did it in the primary as well, ran four different security audits. They all came back clean. So from all accounts so far, it worked completely, and we are now negotiating with some other states to do this again in 2019. Um, And my hope is that over the next couple of years, we can show that this works. Um, I paid for the state of West Virginia's cost to administer the election. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'll continue to do that for the next couple of years, or at least as long as I can afford to. Mm -hmm. Um, and, so,
1: uh, so, yeah. so Bradley, let's just let's just back up a little bit for readers who have not been paying very close attention to this. So, your point is everybody's got smartphones. Ninety-five percent of Americans own mobile phones. Um, as sort of cited in the New Yorker article, um, uh, you know, about thirty-six hundred voting-age Americans in two thousand sixteen were polled, and this and forty percent said they would definitely choose the option of internet voting if they could. So, you have these resources. I don't know if I was explicit with this about this to readers, but. Um, You, after you worked for Mike Bloomberg, basically made some money, decided to be a consultant, ended up working uh, as an early advisor to Uber and took half of your payment in equity. So you made a small fortune or maybe not so small,
0: (laughs) Um, which is great. So now you're
1: spending some of this money on um, mobile voting. Uh, But, you know, you you talk about the blockchain. Um, and so the, you know, you're basically saying it's, it's uh, safe. This was successful. One thing, um, you know, that I, I sort of wonder about, so I, I'd read the numbers, uh, that 144, um, sort of, um, members of the military were able to use the app for the midterms, which is great. Um, but I just wonder, you know, are critics sort of saying, well, that's, you know, like the law of small numbers, are people sort of still concerned about security here, despite the blockchain. And I mean, everything I've read about this mobile app that you're sort of involved with or you support to some extent. I know that you're not wedded to it. Um, it seems to me that it's much more secure than you know what I saw at my local polling station. But there are all these computer scientists, professors across the country who still insist that it's not secure. How yeah. do you sort of...
0: Look, just like, I mean, anyone listening to this podcast probably works in tech or adventure has been involved in it in some way. And what every single listener can tell you is any idea to try to change any industry or any practice is mainly met with experts who tell you that it can't be done. Right? <laughs> right. So that's I live that every single day with every company I invest in, every company I work with. Um, so to me, that's that's normal. But here's what I know: the system we have right now is completely broken. Nobody trusts government. Nobody likes government. Government can't get it done, especially the federal level. It's a total debacle and the country and the democracy can't survive if we go at this rate indefinitely. So just saying, oh, it's too hard is not an acceptable answer. And there's a reason why we did a very small pilot for West Virginia, which was just deployed military, was Mm -hmm. to keep it small so that we could really test it out. I Mm -hmm. envision the next three or four years just being lots and lots of small pilots so we can really mitigate the risk of it, learn what works, learn what doesn't, and kind of keep making it better. But fundamentally, if we don't start working on it now, it's never going to happen. And if we don't change it, You know, you're not going to see an assault weapon ban. You're not going to see real climate change policies. You're not going to see universal health care. So all the things people want to see can't be achieved unless we figure out a way to change the process.
1: And just to underscore how sort of terrible the alternative is, which is, you know, what we're living with. I mean, ballots seldom make their way to the intended recipients when they're overseas. I mean, I think they get lost. Um, Military personnel can email their ballots, but I think they do that uh, sort of forsaking um, their Privacy in return is that is that accurate?
0: Yeah, I mean the the, the 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 funny thing is there's already a current system that is totally insecure in in emailing ballots. Mm-hmm, right, mm-hmm. By like, mailing and ballots also comes with its own risk. Uh, and look, if you anyone here who remembers the 2000 presidential election between Bush and Gore, paper ballots with all those hanging chads had their own problems too. Yeah. So look, every form of electing people comes with a certain amount of problems and a certain amount of risk. The question should be, how do we minimize the risk while maximizing participation? And it's clear to me that blockchain is the way to do it.
1: So beyond blockchain, do you think it's so so one of the criticisms I saw about this startup whose app was used in the West Virginia case, it's it's VOTES, V-O-A-T-Z. Um, one professor said, look, it's a third party. Who knows what its you know, motivations are? But of course, like I think the voting machines that we use are all owned by privately owned companies, one being a 40-year-old uh, company in Nebraska. But Colorado, from my understanding, is trying to um, do something different. So it's getting away from that app specifically, and it wants to develop its own sort of open sourced mobile voting platform, which you are going to sort of help support financially, yeah. I guess, um, yeah. as it tests it out. Do you think that's going to make a difference? I mean, do you think it's the fact that it's this sort of like unknown startup and people sort of have, you know, their own sort of biases against, you know, young technologists who are trying to disrupt things? I'm just wondering. Right.
0: If- Boats is, is founded by, you know, an Indian entrepreneur who's an immigrant. You know, there's biases against that as well. You know, both among people who we like to think are not particularly… Thoughtful, but but sometimes from, from people who consider themselves quite thoughtful as well. Yeah, look, I mean, the, the reason that I am not investing in the space and all the stuff I'm doing is philanthropic is I want to not care who wins, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't matter to me if it's votes or some other startup, if it's public blockchain or private blockchain, if the government owns it or a private company owns it. If it turns out to be something better than blockchain, that's fine with me, too. Mm-hmm. I just want mobile voting to happen because I know from my time in politics, it's the only way to try to fix the system. And so Colorado is looking at trying to do differently. That's fine with me. I'll pay for that. Uh, if, if you know One of the things I've been spending my time on lately is talking to a lot of people in the blockchain community and saying, I need seven or eight different startups working on this because I want them all competing with each other. Mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm it's better. But yeah, I mean, that, that's a big part of the work right now is part of it is creating demand by government and part of it's creating supply uh, by blockchain startups. And we're working on both.
1: Well, I completely support this idea because I, I completely agree with the uh, idea that you know only sort of people who have an agenda oftentimes are the ones who make it to the polls. But there is one last criticism I wanted to run past you before we move on, which is why... Um, not sort of hack the system in a mock trial, which is something that happened in a 2010 um, trial for an open source system of online voting. It was discovered pretty quickly that it was, in fact, hackable. That's the biggest concern of everyone. Yeah. So why didn't votes do this? And is Colorado going to run a, a test? Um,
0: Big Braun, who runs DEF CON, has actually signed on in support of this work and is an advisor now um, to it. So th- that should tell you something. But you know why? Because there's no politician in power right now who's going to want to make it easier to lose their job. So even when we get past the initial issues around coding and everything, right. a massive political resistance. If you are a, a union or the NRA or the Chamber of Commerce, anyone that right now can exert huge amounts of influence because turnout is so low, mm-hmm. they want to change the system. So the only way that we can in any way get that going is to prove that it really works and prove it in real elections itself. And that's why we're not doing it at scale. We're doing it with very small trials. But if I did mock elections for about five years, then they would say, okay, now spend the next five years proving that it works for small pilots, right? Right, so right, right. All that would do is is delay this from happening. Hey, everyone. Don't forget, this episode is brought to you by Sheriff's Post.
1: Okay, well, we've talked a little bit about your ties to Uber. While I have you on the phone, I want to talk about Uber's, you know, IPO plan for, uh, this coming year. Um, so you and I talked about a year ago and in fact, so as I was telling listeners, you received these shares, uh, and you told me a year ago when SoftBank was coming in to do sort of a secondary, um, buy-in that you were selling all of your shares at that point because you sort of thought, um, you know, it was maybe going to go 1.5X where it was then, which I think was like 60 billion. Um, So, bankers now are talking to the company about $120 billion valuation. I have to ask, does that seem crazy to you? Does Um, that seem reasonable?
0: So, we were only allowed to sell ultimately 42% of our shares to SoftBank. Okay. Um, It was oversubscribed. So, I'm quite happy with the 120 number because I still own more than half of my Uber equity. Uh, Okay. Um, But, yeah, I'm a little surprised by that. It does seem (laughs) like a very aggressive number. I'm obviously happy about her as a shareholder, but I think what people will be, look, any investment in Uber obviously is a long-term bet on the future, like someone who would invested in Amazon in the early days. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing that Dara is doing well, and I've had my criticisms of him to be clear, but one thing he's doing well is really expanding Uber into a mobility company as opposed to just a ride-sharing company. Mm-hmm, work mm-hmm. In scooters, of which we're investors in birds, so we compete with them in that area, but, but I support overall what's happening in that space. Um, and bikes, and there's so many different ways of getting from point A to point B is really interesting and looks at the world in a far more sophisticated way than just saying ride sharing makes a lot of sense in the US, so we're just going to import it to wherever else in the world. That worked in some places, but didn't work in a lot of places, too. Mm-hmm. So I, I think one thing they've done well in the last year or two is, is recognize that they need a broader strategy in pursuit.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But so does its main rival, Lyft, although Lyft, of course, is still very focused on the U.S. and Canada, whereas Uber has tried to take a much more sort of global strategy and I think is in like 60 markets. Um, so Lyft is also coming. Now, any thoughts on how important it is for one to get out in front of the other?
0: It's a really good question, and I honestly I think the answer to you is you could probably game it out to death. Like for example, it's not just Lyft and Uber, but Didi, right? Uber mm-hmm, owns twenty two percent of Didi, put that. And you know, so if Didi IPOs first, and they have a massive valuation that inherently makes Uber worth more because Uber owns a fifth of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if Didi IPOs and it does really poorly, flip side, right? So there's so many different ways you can game this stuff out. And I, I don't entirely know, but my sense is that Uber will go as soon as they possibly can. I mm-hmm. think there's always well, a lot of pressure on the company to do that. But if the answer is, you know, Lyft is able to go in Q1, Uber can't go till Q3. Cause, and if the alternative is doing it in Q1 and screwing it up, then we'll wait till Q3.
1: I also think it's interesting, you know, I read a story, I guess, today on Yahoo Finance sort of saying that Lyft is growing faster than Uber. Um, Of course, it's harder for Uber to grow its revenue at the same pace because it's so much bigger. But I think the argument is um, for this article that was, you know, if if it's Lyft versus Uber, there's much more upside with Lyft. Lyft is going to come out at like 15 billion versus, you know, 120 billion. I just wonder, you know, do you. Well, there's a lot
0: more. It's. First of all, anyone investing once it goes public is just paying the price per share, so that may or may not. Who knows what that will be? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, Lyft is valued at less, so therefore there's arguably more room to grow. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, their ability to reach consumers, uh, look, it, it's a lot less than Uber's. So there was an article in the information yesterday about how Lyft had the opportunity to try to really close the gap on Uber during Uber's really rough period in mm-hmm.
1: And it's it did big, though, didn't I mean, it? I mean, it's,
0: it's, I mean, it's, more, it's like it a did not. I mean, it gained a little bit, but not nearly what you would have expected. Um, if, if I read that article correctly.
1: Well, I, well that might be true. I think it had like single digits of market share in 2016. Now it has about 30%. I think Uber has the rest. So yeah. it's certainly much bigger. I, I don't really know in terms of, you know, how much that's. I mean, I
0: don't, I don't I don't Look, I mean, From when we started this, there were companies like Halo and, you know, Juno. And I mean, there, there's been a variety of companies always nipping at Uber's heels mm-hmm. from day one. Mm-hmm. And like, you no, know, Uber's never going to have, you know, if they can control 70% of the market in the U.S., that's really good. And quite frankly, if you've got much more than that, they might have FTC problems
1: anyway. Oh, that's um, an interesting point. So
0: I, I think, you know. ultimately, you know, would I prefer Uber to go first? Sure, because I'd like to get my money sooner than later. But like, (laughs) I think it really matters, probably not.
1: Right. Um, uh, Some other interesting things. So just, uh, you know, the, the companies are sort of, you know, competing in many ways. One thing that we don't see as much because it's sort of related to drivers is how they are competing to make their services more attractive to their sort of biggest customer, which in a sense, which is the the drivers. Um, So yesterday, um, Lyft changed some things. It now gives a five-star rating um, to drivers. If a passenger doesn't rate the driver at all, which I think is smart, um, it will also um, allow passengers to uh, tip the drivers by default. Um, And it's also adding in protective excuse me, predictive information about ride demand hour by hour, uh, which, you know, I just think these little things sort of can add up to make a difference. Yeah, ab-
0: absolutely. I mean, there's there's no reason not to do any of them. The, the only one of those three that I'm not totally sure about is mm-hmm. the default five-star rating only because... The rating system is a way for the platforms to really ensure quality control. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Customers have a pretty good experience every time. The reason why we'd be taxi in the first place is because the taxi experience has become so reliably bad all the time. Right. That Being able to deliver a better experience is really what paid off, but you've got to have some metrics to ensure that it's a truly better experience. So I whether or not that one makes sense, I don't know. But, yeah, default tip would, would actually be great. I would I would gladly do that instead of just having to do it every single time. Yeah, maybe.
1: absolutely. You so, know, an, another interesting angle here, and, and one I've talked about in past episodes, is – Um, and I'm sure you've followed this closely, is the fact that Saudi Arabia is a huge um, shareholder in SoftBank and so a huge shareholder in Uber. And actually, it also has a direct investment in Uber through its public investment fund. Not everyone in Saudi Arabia is terrible, of course, but its leader, Mohammed bin Salman, um, certainly seems to be for a wide number of reasons, Um, most recently, including the killing of a journalist, Jamal Khashoggi. So what's interesting to me, though, is this makes things tricky for uh, Uber CEO Dara Koreshahi, as you're obviously well aware. Um, he was at um, an event last week and he was trying to sort of push away questions about what it, you know it means having sort of this dark presence involved in Uber. He said, look, they deserve a seat at the table. We're waiting on more information. But what uh, sort of gets overlooked, and I could be wrong about this, but um, Lyft also has... Uh, Saudi Arabia involved in it. Uh, You know, I don't know if you remember, but in February 2016, uh, Andreessen Horowitz and Founders Fund, two early investors in Lyft, sold a bunch of their shares. I think 150 million worth at the time to um, Prince Al Waleed bin Talal and his Kingdom Holding Company. So this is a different prince who was a big tech investor. and then was more recently um, abducted with some other princes and locked up. And I think some of his uh, sort of assets were, were confiscated. So anyway, I just think it's very interesting that both of these companies have these ties. And I think they probably both want to get Saudi Arabia off their balance sheet.
0: An IPO would obviously enable that to happen because then the early stage investors all get paid out. Um, but look, I mean, SoftBank, a huge, huge amount of their money in the Vision Fund comes from Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm unless startups are going to stop wanting to get investments from SoftBank. Um, you know, it's going to have a continued presence in in fundings and in rounds across the board. So the question is, you know, I don't think there's like a, a realistic way to purge all of tech from Saudi money. Mm-hmm. We're interconnected at this point to, to do that, but there is a way to say, and I would like to see Uber do this. You know, what just happened with Khashoggi is beyond unacceptable. Right? They're not going to tolerate this, right? And it may be that, you know, we are going to remove a board seat or we are not going to give this person information, whatever it is, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. some sort of action to make it clear where you stand. Um, because, you know, the, the, the same thing that enabled Uber to challenge an industry that was a cartel and to challenge a status quo was ultimately freedom of expression, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm freedom expression is protected by the First Amendment, you know, was just as deserved by Jamal Khashoggi. And so, you know, I, I really do think it's critical um, for any company that has meaningful softback money or Saudi money to at least be willing to sort of be very clear about how to do
1: it. I completely agree. And it's going to be interesting as, as these companies go out, if there's going to be more pressure to do that, because, you know, I just wonder if public shareholders are going to sort of be given pause by sort of, you know, In a way, helping enrich these guys, you know, if they don't get, if they don't sell their shares right away. I don't know. I think it's, I think it's, uh,
0: buying kind of the mm -hmm. the tech lash right now, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Facebook under massive criticism from the way that they tried to cover up Mm -hmm. a lot of the different problems on that, their platform, Amazon announcing that they picked, you know, New York and Northern Virginia, I think expecting to be received, you know, with a hero's welcome and instead met with tremendous amount of criticism, especially here in New York. Uh, Google having all kinds of antitrust and privacy issues. So you've got both the really really big tech companies facing some meaningful public policy challenges at the same time. You have a lot of startups with Saudi money or SoftBank money, and so yeah, it's it's really tough across the board right
1: now. How do you think those stories are going to play out next year? I mean, um, you know, I've I've had many friends who have abandoned Facebook. I have many more who've said they're going to abandon Facebook and haven't. Uh, they still see enough you know utility in it that. No matter what happens, um, you know, and it's sort of like the high cycle. It's, you know, big deal today by tomorrow. You know, it's not in everyone's interest to sort of keep thinking about it. Uh, do you think there's going to be sort of like a lingering impact or even, you know, for things to get sort of more extreme? Do you do you see Facebook getting deregulated at some point? I'm sorry, regulated, excuse excuse
0: me. Yeah, no, I I think it's eminently possible. Look, and I I think Facebook just made a really fundamental error at the beginning, Mm -hmm. which was to say, we've created this platform that has literally more followers than Christianity, but we can assume and predict and know what all 2.2 billion users are going to do at any given time, Mm -hmm. control all of it, so you don't Mm -hmm. need to regulate us because we can make sure nothing bad ever happens. Mm -hmm. Right, Mark Zuckerberg is a really, really smart dude, but he's not omniscient, right? And you know, given human nature is what it is, whether it's Alex Jones or Iranian, you know, interference or Russian hacking, like bad stuff's going to happen, right? Mm -hmm. That's real life. And instead of trying to just like handle it all yourself and then cover it up when you fail to do so, you know, Facebook at the very front end should have said, "Look, we've built this platform; it does remarkable, amazing things." But it's a brand new technology. We don't fully understand what it could potentially do. So we're going to work with regulators to figure out, know what we know, know what we don't know, and figure it out. And by the way, that's exactly what should be happening on lots of white spaces. So that's true for autonomous vehicles. It's true for drones. It's true for crypto. It's true for artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are certainly areas where tech is over-regulated, and that's usually kind of in the Uber-type cases where you've got, you know, basically an incumbent who wants to preserve market share A startup is trying to take market share and the regulatory fight is really just a fight over market share, kind of people using politicians to do their bidding. Mm -hmm. Whereas there's under-regulation in the Facebooks and Googles of the world. We had this entirely new platform that no one understood. Therefore, because no one was being uh, kind of disrupted or by it, uh, no one really, there was no political force against it. So they just grew and grew and grew. And then we made these assumptions that the people who create these platforms or these technologies are all-knowing and are powerful and they're not, they're human beings um, and I think that, that you have a real under-regulation problem around that. So, you know, the, the way we regulate tech right now, I think, is off in a lot of different ways.
1: It's interesting. I mean, I sometimes wonder if these companies could have grown to be so big if their leaders weren't so likable. I mean, people have given so much information over to Google over the years because I think they thought, oh, Larry Page and Sergey Brin are really, you know, these nice, accessible-seeming people. And I just always thought, well, at some point, that's going to change, <laughs> you know, whether by force or uh, choice. Um and anyway, but but bottom line, you don't think Mark Zuckerberg or Sheryl Sandberg uh, are going anywhere? I think that, no.
0: I would be surprised if they. Well, Zuckerberg owns the company, so he can decide. Sheryl does <laughs> it this manner if he feels like it. But no, I don't. Given his his control of the company, I don't think he's going anywhere. By the way, he has delivered really well for his shareholders. Right. I do think that if they keep fighting off every attempt at regulation at every turn it's going to continue to backfire just as badly as the last year or two have.
1: Um, Bradley, we're running out of time, but before I let you go, and again, I really appreciate you making time for this. Um, I did wonder what you thought of the House, the composition changing and the House of Representatives and what this will mean for startups. I mean, it seems that at least on the fintech front, you know, um, deregulation could be slowed down. I don't really know how effective Lee. <laughs> I'm just wondering what you think, what, what the yeah, biggest impact will so, be in
0: What we're going to see is, is total gridlock, right? Because, you know, have one, one party controlling one chamber, one party controlling the other. The two parties absolutely hate each other right now. And unless there's sort of an absolute national crisis or a really benign issue, you're just not going to see anything move one way or another. So if you want a deregulation that would require legislation, I don't think you're going to see that happen. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I'm worried about Congress passing laws that would hurt you. I don't Mm -hmm. think you're going to see that happen either. But a lot of the regulation on the federal level really happens in the agencies and the executive branch, more so than the Congress. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so a lot of that just comes down to the individual – you know, commissioner, secretary, you know, like we're seeing the FDA, for example, be very aggressive around things like Juul. Right. Uh, SEC is taking a, a more cautious approach to crypto. Um, you know, DOT is being somewhat proactive when it comes to autonomous. So it, it really varies from agency to agency. And because there's no clear tech policy or agenda out of the White House other than using Twitter every day. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, the agencies are sort of left to their own devices to figure this stuff out. And so you've got to kind of understand them piece by piece and figure out what moves each item.
1: Right, right. Well, on some of this stuff, I wouldn't mind gridlock for a change <laughs> just to sort of have time to catch our breath. Anyway, Bradley, thank you so much again. Love talking to you. Happy holidays, everyone. And uh, we'll catch you next week.
0: All right. Thanks for having me. Thank you. All right everybody, thank you for listening and a big thank you to our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer Henry Picavet, and we'll see you all right here next week.